morning. It's Marissa and you are listening to From Boise. This month, we've been sharing all spooky, scary, Halloween-ish stories. And today is the day. It's Halloween. It's the 31st of October. So today will be our final spooky story until next year. Maybe. I don't know. I might throw another one in at some point. But today's story is about Idaho's first known serial killer, which also happens to be one of the first female serial killers in America. Her name is Lida Southard, and she was born in Twin Falls. She spent some time in Boise, and she was a very interesting person, to put it one way. (laughs) Um, So this story was written by Julie Sarasqueta. Julie is a writer and tarot reader who lives in Boise. Julie did an amazing job writing this story, and today I will be reading it to you. So here we go. Enjoy. If you opened a newspaper in the United States in 1921, you'd see thousands of column inches splattered with bloody tales of lurid and brazen murders. Police were still trying to determine who set off an explosive on Wall Street that killed 30 people and injured 200 the year before. The trial of Sacco and Vincetti, the Italian immigrant anarchist accused of murdering two people during a bank robbery, had kept readers gripped. The early film star, Fatty Arbuckle, endured the opening arguments for his trial for the rape and manslaughter of Virginia Rappe. And in Idaho, a petite woman named Lida Southard was making national headlines as a jury tried to answer the question, could this pleasant, friendly woman be a murderer? On paper, Idaho's first known serial killer was unremarkable. She was pretty, but not beautiful, although a paper later reported she possessed, quote, guileless blue eyes and the cooing voice of a dove, end quote. She did not come from money or power. Lida Trueblood was the second of 11 children from a Missouri family that moved to Twin Falls in southern Idaho, and she appeared to be on a path similar to thousands of other women her age throughout the country. She weathered heart-wrenching events like other women of the time. Lida married her first husband, Robert Dooley, another native Missourian, in Twin Falls in 1912. The newlyweds moved to a ranch in the Twin Falls area that same year, and they were joined by Edward, Robert's brother. In 1913, Lida and Robert had a baby girl they named Lorraine. But by 1915, tragedy seemed to haunt Lida. Lorraine drank contaminated well water and died. Robert passed away from pteomine poisoning, which is an acute food poisoning type, that August. And in October, Edward died of typhoid fever. It was a terrible string of bad luck for a young woman in her 20s. But armed with the insurance money she collected from Robert's death, as well as the additional insurance money from Robert's policy that had gone to Edward and then on to Lida after Ed's demise. She began again. Moving on never seemed to be a problem for Lida. Despite her seemingly normal, if painful, life, she was different. She exerted a mesmerizing force over the people around her, attracting men, friends, support, and even feral animals to herself. She married again less than two years after losing her first family. Save the date. Wintery Market is back in Boise next month on November 17th and 18th in downtown Boise. Wintery Market is a handmade for the holidays indie craft, art, and vintage market. This year, there will be 187 regional artists, makers, and small businesses set up in four different rooms of the Boise Center in downtown Boise. 
Wintery Market is one of the very best places to get unique and handmade holiday gifts, and you're supporting makers and small businesses in the process, including from Boise. That's right. We will have a booth at Wintry Market this year. So come see us and say hello and shop our new things to be announced soon. Admission for Wintry Market is $10 for Friday, which is good for both days, or $5 on Saturday, and children age 12 and under are free. You can buy your tickets online in advance or with cash or card at the door. So save the date for Wintry Market at Boise Center on the Grove Plaza in downtown Boise, happening Friday, November 17th from 4 to 9 p.m. and Saturday, November 18th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can learn more and see a list of the 2023 vendors at wintrymarket.com, which is W-I-N-T-R-Y market.com. Arsenic is naturally occurring elements. It's number 33 on the periodic table. And despite understanding its toxicity thousands of years ago, it is so useful that humans have been unable to resist it. Egyptians added it to their embalming fluid during the mummification process. Hippocrates, the legendary ancient Greek doctor, used it to treat ulcers. In the 19th century, arsenic was added to sugary candies and cosmetic face powders or mixed into paint and wallpaper to create luridly vivid green. It emerged as an effective treatment for syphilis in the early 1900s. It is also, arguably, the most legendary and successful poison ever employed by humans. The Roman emperor Nero is thought to have killed his 13-year-old stepbrother with it. Centuries later, the Italian aristocrat and ruthless social climber Lucrezia Borgia supposedly had hinged a ring stuffed with lacantrea, a poison that most likely contained arsenic, and dispensed it into the food and drink of her rivals. Napoleon Bonaparte's hair contained high levels of the chemical, leading some to believe that he was offed while in exile on the island of St. Helena. Arsenic was added to bombs during World War I, and there are still fields in Europe that will be forever wastelands because of their heavy use. Those are some of the most famous cases, but there are hundreds, probably thousands, more examples that slip by unnoticed before the first chemical test for arsenic was developed in 1836. Arsenic is tasteless and odorless, and until the early 20th century, it was available in the most common and mundane household products, like flypaper. Lida's bad luck continued despite her new marriage to William McAfee, father to a three-year-old daughter who passed away unexpectedly soon after he married Lida. The couple set out for a fresh start in Montana, but William died of influenza and diphtheria during the peak of the 1918 global flu pandemic. That was in October. The next March, she wed again, this time to a car salesman named Harlan Lewis. He survived just a few months before succumbing to gastroenteritis. The next year, Lida found another husband back home in Idaho when she married ranch foreman Edward Meyer in Pocatello. Despite her diligent nursing, he also died of typhoid. Anyone paying attention might have noticed that the time span between marriage and the death of Lida's husband was shortening. Arsenic poisoning is a long game. Once you've sourced the poison, it's a simple matter of extracting the compound and putting it to use. If you're a woman in the early 20th century, you've probably selected arsenic because it's convenient. In fact, it's a perfectly ordinary product to buy in the normal running of a household. You are responsible for the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping, after all. 
how easy would it be to boil a strip of arsenic-laced flypaper until the chemical leaches into the water? How easy would it be to scrape out the tasteless, odorless, toxic powder left behind at the bottom of a pot? How easy would it be to serve that poisonous concoction to a man who depends on you for his meals, who devours your famously delicious cooking every time you place a plate in front of him? The hard part is waiting and waiting and waiting. Arsenic is not a fast-acting poison, and the symptoms of acute intoxication are similar to thousands of other common ailments, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Arsenic requires patience and diligence, and a willingness to stick with the long game for weeks to get the final outcome. As a murderer, you'll enjoy the benefits of the relatively gore-free death that takes place in plain sight. You'll just need the stomach and the will to watch the suffering. Earl Dooley, who was the cousin to Lida's first husband and brother-in-law, was a chemist in Twin Falls, and Lida's stories of woe did not sit right with him. Now, Lida was back in Idaho with yet another recently deceased man's name added to her own, and Earl Dooley decided to raise the alarm. Earl suspected poison. Twin Falls Deputy Sheriff Virgil Ormsby, who knew Lida and her history from her days in Twin Falls, began investigating. Lida's previous husbands and her daughter were exhumed and tested. The Idaho State Life Insurance Company of Boise revealed that Lida was the beneficiary of her husband's insurance policies and had collected about $10,000, which is roughly $170,000 today, although she did not collect on every policy. Lida's cookware tested positive for arsenic. So did the body she had left behind. Some reports state the bodies were in exceptional condition. I guess the Egyptians were right about the powers of preservation. Law enforcement issued a warrant for Lida's arrest, but Lida had already hit the road, this time to Honolulu, where her new husband, Paul Southard, was stationed. As a Navy man, Paul had refused Lida's request to take out life insurance policy, rightly pointing out the fact that government benefits would be directed to her if he ever died. In May 1921, she was taken into custody in Honolulu against Paul's vocal protestations, and preparations for one of the most sensational trials in Idaho history began. Lida was nicknamed Lady Bluebeard in the press, a nod to the French folktale about the murderous husband who keeps the bodies of his murdered wives in his home. Coverage of Lida's trial, much like Lori Vallow Daybell's trial a hundred years later, fascinated the nation. For weeks, a parade of 150 witnesses made the case for and against Lida as she stood trial for the murder of Edward Meyer. Her furloughed husband stood steadfastly by her. She reportedly said, quote, Don't you think I have a dear husband to stick by me like this? <laughs> Lida's parents supported her as well, and Lida made the case that she carried typhoid and accidentally passed it on to her husband's and child. This was countered by the news that a shopkeeper in Montana recalled selling Lida a huge quantity of arsenic-laced flypaper. After 23 hours of deliberations, the jury returned a guilty verdict, and Lida entered the Idaho State Penitentiary. But Lida's charm and patience were no match for the walls of the old pen. While inside the old pen, Lida was a model inmate, a dear friend to her fellow prisoners, and a caretaker of animals on the prison's grounds. She was also incredibly persuasive, as further evidence of her charms. Her husband, Paul Southern, didn't divorce her until 1928, years after her trial. She charmed a prison guard into bringing her bedsheets and, unbelievably, a saw. <laughs> she also persuaded recently released inmate David Minton to wait for her outside while she used the saw and the bedsheet to escape her cell on May 4th, 1931. 
David was hoping for a love match with Lida, but Lida was never much for lovers. She was the marrying type. Lida dumped David and found her next husband, a wealthy man named Harry Whitlock in Denver. Was Lida motivated solely by insurance money, or did she actually take pleasure in each murder? The FBI was still a young agency at this time, and they were decades away from creating their famous serial killer profiling protocol. But if it had been around then, Lida would probably have been classified as a, quote, organized serial killer. Like Ted Bundy, one of the most famous organized type serial killers in modern history, she was a productive member of society who had charisma and charm in a way with the opposite sex. She was methodical and patient, for the most part, in her crimes. And, like Bundy, she was also capable of forming strong bonds with other people, like her new husband, Harry Whitlock's nine-year-old son, Benny. In Denver, Lida seemed to have a relatively stable life. She was provided for by a wealthy man. She went to church regularly. She had a new stepson who adored her. And by all accounts, the feeling for her stepson was mutual, even if she had recently asked his father to take out a life insurance policy. Maybe that care explains why she did what she did next. With a nationwide search for her whereabouts underway, her wanted poster mentions her, quote, very shifty look, and her partner in crime, Minton, fast on her trail, Lida went to Kansas to visit her sick mother. She wrote to her husband, Harry, using her real name. This might have been Lida's way of giving back. She knew the letter would lead to her capture and hoped Harry and Benny could keep the $50 reward for information leading to her arrest. She was apprehended in Topeka soon thereafter, and annulment papers followed accordingly. Lida's presence had been sorely missed at the old pen. Quote, our place seems like a tomb with Stevie gone, her fellow inmates in the women's sections reportedly complained after her escape, using Lida's prison nickname. When Lida returned to the old pen, she resumed her role as model inmate. A Time magazine report covered her release in 1941. Governor Clark had vetoed it, but it was outvoted by his two fellow parole board members. Here's a quote from that Time article. Paroled for a six-month probationary period to her sister, Mrs. John Quigley of Nyssa, Oregon, Lida had no immediate plans. Declaring that Lida embroiders divinely, Ms. Quigley suggested she might set her sister up in a fancy workshop. Mrs. Quigley did not suggest a restaurant. <laughs> End quote. Lida couldn't stay unmarried for long, though. After her full pardon in 1943, Lida married Hal Shaw in Utah. Hal would be Lida's final husband, and quite possibly her final murder. His family did not love the idea of Hal being married to a former convict, even a paroled and pardoned one, and pressured him to divorce her. He disappeared before that could happen. Alone again and in her 50s, Lida Trueblood Dooley McAfee Lewis Meyer Southerd Whitlock Shaw went back to Twin Falls. While carrying her groceries one day in 1958, she suffered a heart attack and died. Idaho's most famous murderer, its first known serial killer, and one of the most murderous women in United States history, is buried in a nondescript grave with a simple headstone at Sunset Memorial Park in Twin Falls. For more information about Lida, and there is so much more to discover about her, check out the Idaho State Historical Society's podcast, Behind Gray Walls, Episode 10, or visit the Old Pen. This story was written by Julie Sarasqueta. Julie is a writer and tarot reader who lives in Boise. You can read this story and see some photos of Lida Southard in today's newsletter, which is in your inbox or at fromboise.com. Thanks for listening and happy Halloween. Halloween.